I'm Jeff Cohen. Brian Silvey has engineered an impressive career in information technology as someone who knows how to innovate and apply automation to improve customer processes. But he also engineered quite a journey to Jewish observance, and he's here today to share his story. Brian, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Thanks, Jeff. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I appreciate you taking some time, Brian, to share your story. And as with all of our guests, we like to take it from the top. So give our listeners a sense of where you were born and raised. Uh, I was born in uh, New Jersey and grew up pretty much in Piscataway, New Jersey in the 1980s. And that's probably important because for my story, most of that time I was uh, not from. We grew up in a traditional home, I suppose you could say. And Piscataway itself is important because it encouraged multiculturalism and uh, you know, was supportive of many different races, classes, etc. And it was a nice melting pot in the traditional sense of the word. It's also at the crossroads of Philadelphia and New York. So you had you know, the best of both worlds and people traveling back and forth through that area, living there and commuting to both sides as work and uh, you know, general life. So it was a... An interesting time, especially during the 1980s, with everything going on during that period. And it was just my sister and I and my two parents. They had moved out from Brooklyn because they both said when they got married, they didn't want to live in New York City. And that was the compromise for them. And so you use this word traditional, which I think can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So what, what did that mean within your family in terms of what you were doing Jewish-wise in the customs, maybe Hebrew school, like different things like that, that some people may or may not have been doing growing up in, in what they would still call a traditional home? Here it means our home was filled with all kinds of Jewish references, books, items such as uh, Shabbos candle holders and... Um, matzah plates, for example, and things like that. But we didn't really observe. We attended a Reconstructionist shul. And it was um, somewhat strange growing up, again, in Piscataway, with them preaching, at least for my earliest memories in the, the late 80s, multiculturalism, acceptance, equality. And yet, they never meant Jews. They always meant, you know, Colombians. They always meant Brazilians. They always meant, uh, you know, Indians. They always meant something else, but it was never Jews. And that was somewhat confusing. And so can you just talk about that word reconstructionism just for a second? Because, you know, in interviewing a lot of our guests, you'll hear people on these journeys from reform to conservative to orthodox. And I just want to make sure our listeners understand when you say you were in a reconstructionist background and that's what your family was following, what did that mean to you? And what was happening within your family? I think it was a compromise on my parents' part. I don't think they really wanted it, but I think that was the only game in town, so to speak, and so they went with it. They got together a bunch of families. I believe it was only you know 30 to 40 families at the time, but I was young, so I'm not really reliable. It was a makeshift building that they put together, so it wasn't fully a shul. If you drove past it, and you still can today, it doesn't look any different than it did 35 years ago. It really didn't look like a shul, and on the inside, it barely had the trappings of a shul. It did have a Sefer Torah. It did have two sides, although the men and the women did sit together. And um, there was Hebrew school there. So it was traditional in that regard, but I don't know how to really define Reconstructionism because I never got a clear definition myself <laughs> as a kid, you know, and I probably didn't care at the time. But it was somewhere between, you know, conservative and reformed. 
They took liberties in different areas of interpretation. They took liberties in observance. And they took liberties whenever, you know, it, it was convenient or expedient. So uh, it was a strange mix. And the things that you were or weren't doing as a kid, so were you in public school or going to any kind of yeshiva? And did you get to do Hebrew school? Like you mentioned, they had that on the premises of the shul you were going to. So were you part of that, say, once or twice a week? Yes, yes. Actually, it was, I believe, twice or three times a week. It was on premises. It was a dual curriculum, so to speak. It was Limudia Chol, meaning just secular studies, and it was Limudia Kodesh. It was Torah. It was mitzvos. In fact, something that's very important, which I know you want to talk about later, is one project when I was a kid I distinctly remember. They taught us about Shema, and they taught us to read Hebrew, recite Shema. You recite Shema before bed. You recite Shema when you get up in the morning. And that you recite Shema before you die. And they taught us to write the Shema on a piece of paper, roll it up, put it into a little box, and place it on the doorway of your house. And that became a mezuzah. And as I, I think we'll discuss later, it really became something that turned my life around remembering that lesson on mezuzah. And they had other things like that as well, like sukkah. They would have a sukkah on the side of the shul. Now, I know from my current observance that the main point is to sleep in the sukkah, to eat in the sukkah. But we never did that at this reconstruction shul. They had a large kiddish, so to speak, after prayers. But it was never anything that we could do as my family does today. We get excited about building it. We get excited about eating in it. We get excited about sleeping in it, etc. So none of that. It did have a lot of the traditional trappings of a, of a shul. It's just that in certain areas, they would choose to do something for expedience that was different than tradition. I still feel like you were actually ahead of a lot of people I've spoken to who weren't raised in an Orthodox family, even though maybe some of these things that you're mentioning weren't done to the level that a fully observant person would do. The fact that you were even being exposed to these terms and knew about Shema and Asukah and things like that, like those weren't even on my radar growing up. So I feel like your starting point is even still a little bit ahead of myself and some of the people I've spoken to on this podcast. Agreed. Absolutely. It's just that it, it rang hollow. It appeared to be traditional, but at the same time, it didn't have the substance that really made it meaningful. That's what I was actually just going to ask you is what your attitude and connection was to Judaism. You're having these experiences, but you just use this phrase like it rang hollow for you. Do you look back on your childhood and your connection to Judaism as, as a positive thing, or it opened up all these questions, or what were your feelings about it as a child? I definitely do see it as a positive. It definitely uh, was helpful. And the only thing I think that was missing was the recognition from the outer world, as I explained earlier, that Piscataway was so embracing the multiculturalism, but yet they didn't recognize Jews. Mm -hmm. And you could walk down the street and pass a number of Protestant churches, Catholic churches, and all kinds of temples. But we didn't get the same treatment, for example, when the place was vandalized once by a bunch of kids. We didn't get the same serious treatment from the police, thinking, oh, it's just a rented building. And when the guy walked in, the officer said, oh, I didn't realize this was a place of worship. So I do think it was a positive, yes use this word traditional, what was your bar mitzvah like? Was it traditional in the sense of like what a conservative or reformed child would experience versus what an orthodox child would experience when they have their bar mitzvah? I think so, because I was trained to lane from the Torah. 
Uh, we called up seven people, I recall. We, we did it in a very distinct way so that the father was not called after the son, for example. So in one or two of these cases, it was actually done by Jewish law. You know, you don't follow a, a father with a son, even when called up to the Torah, and they honored that. Now, uh, on the other side, the rabbi was a woman who played her guitar on Shabbos. <laughs> That's a little different. <laughs> so, <laughs> which is a little bit different. Um, but she was wonderful. She was really wonderful. She was out of the rabbinical college, I believe, in Philadelphia. Very serious and very well-known and very kind. So in all ways, I do agree that it was a positive experience. And so after you had the bar mitzvah, for most of my friends, that was the end of the line. It was like, what a great party. And <laughs> it was nice knowing you, Judaism. Now I'm like heading towards high school and I'm going to do my thing. What direction did your connection to Judaism go post bar mitzvah? Uh, it pretty much ended. You know, there, there were the family events and I do have extended family throughout the country and we would go to their events uh, just like mine, bar mitzvahs. And they were uh, a range of observances in there as well, although most of them would call themselves conservative. But for the most part, my high school career began uh, where my bar mitzvah ended, essentially. So if it was seventh grade, maybe eighth grade was a, a slowdown in Judaism until I finally reached high school. And then in high school, it really took on a more academic approach and Judaism fell by the wayside. Which is really sad when you think about it, and it tells you that something is just not right in the progression that Reform, Reconstructionist, conservative Jews are going through, that this feeling of once you hit the bar mitzvah, that's the end of it, as opposed to just the beginning. Like you've, you see now my friends who are raising their kids Orthodox, the bar mitzvah is a clear point where you're told, now you take on all the mitzvahs and now you like run with this. And the kids that are more secular are getting basically the opposite message. Yes, it does seem like that. Benefit of the doubt, I remember them teaching us that once you have your bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah, you should be self-sufficient. You should know how to, how to pray yourself. And I didn't know the word daven at that point, but you should be able to pray by yourself anywhere you want. You should be able to talk to God, have a relationship with God, and have some of the skills to take it further. I would agree and, and say that I did. It's just that I took a slightly different path and went down the Orthodox road rather than following the traditional secular path that most of the other folks in that shul did. And then you just mentioned as you were thinking about high school and then going into college, you started focusing on academics and maybe what you want to do for a living. And what I find interesting about that is, like, as my children are getting closer to that age and they think about college in particular— the idea of, do I want to be at a place like YU where I know that I'll be surrounded by Jewish people and within the bubble of the life that I'm being raised with versus going to a secular place, but will there be enough of a Jewish infrastructure that I could still be there? But um, it sounds like from your story that that's not on your radar at all as you're starting to think about what you want to do professionally in the kind of college that makes sense for you. Is that right? That's about right. And of course, there were the high school distractions of sports and other clubs and things like that that I got involved in. So that took up a great deal of my time as a distraction away from Judaism. But um, I do agree with that statement. Okay. And so when I said in the introduction about you having this expertise in technology, did you know in these high school years that that was a field you wanted to go into? And did that play into where you went to college and what you studied? <laughs> that is a funny question because my 
t-shirts, my giveaways at my bar mitzvah were a t-shirt that said, I had a bite, a (laughs) B-Y-T-E, at Brian's bar mitzvah. (laughs) It was just a throwaway comment, you know, a throwaway t-shirt, but I actually still have one to this day. And it's sentimental to me because I think I did have some sense of it. At that time, you know, it was the emergence of technology, really, home computing. And uh, I said, this is pretty cool. You know, I think I can get into this stuff. And I think that's probably where it comes from, aside from just being immersed in it in our daily life anyway. Okay, so then where did you go to college and what did you study? Well, I had a short stint majoring in swimming at a small Pennsylvania college that lasted about a year and a half. And uh, when I, I just couldn't keep up anymore and pretty much had enough of swimming, I decided to go to Monmouth University. I was somewhat lost in academics I thought I wanted to be a math major and found out the hard way I just couldn't be a math major. I eventually just got a degree in journalism and public relations because it was easy and decided to get out that way and try to find a job. But the first job that I could find when I graduated was a mix of the two. It was a mix of some of the engineering, mathematics, and sciences, and computing, and the English language focus of journalism and public relations. I got a job working at a U.S. defense contractor at Fort Monmouth, basically as a technical writer. And I have to credit my father, who suggested to me after I graduated, he said to me, you know, there's got to be someone who translates what the engineers want to do with what has to be done, and you should look into that as a position because those kinds of people are valuable to really translate between different audiences and explain things clearly so that you can design complex systems. And I found a position called technical writer was just right for me. Uh, And that was doing good work for the U.S. Army intelligence based out of Fort Monmouth. So it was a a nice mix of the two. So you you mentioned that during the high school years, you started focusing on academics and religion was not a primary thing for you. So I'm wondering if as you went to college and then through that got your first job, is religion becoming more of a central focus yet in your life or it's still... Not yet that point where it's going to become something more prominent. It's tricky. The answer is tricky because I had lived on campus for about a year and a half to two years. At the second year period, I started to live off campus, and the houses that we rented all had mezuzahs on the doors. So in the Monmouth University area, a lot of the houses are owned by Jewish people and religious Jewish people that they put the mezuzahs on the doorways, and I recognized them. So it was somewhat of a reminder. Um, Not that I was looking for it, but it certainly did appear, and I certainly did recognize them. Right, but it's one thing to see a mezuzah and say, oh yeah, that's a good reminder of, you know, how I was raised and that Judaism is important, but that's a far cry from, I think I want to explore my Judaism on a deeper level. So is there a point now, either in the early jobs, where you start rethinking how you're raised and maybe what role you want Judaism to play in your life? It probably came at the expense of some anti-Semitic jokes within the fraternity that I joined, Um, some really brutal stuff and then some pretty pretty innocuous stuff. So it ranged, but um, I did notice, you know, driving home from parties, driving home from people's houses on Friday nights, Jewish people were walking on the sides of the road. And in fact, one of my fraternity brothers asked me one night in sort of his, his drunken state, he says, hey, Sylvie, why is it that Jewish people walk home on Fridays in the dark and wear black. And I said, I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know. <laughs> good question. <laughs> yeah, good question. I don't know if there's an answer. So, so that, that might have, again, 
I wasn't really looking for it, but it sort of appeared and I, I went with it because it started to be a reminder about how I felt in Piscataway that, oh, we're all about multiculturalism, we're all about acceptance, and we're all about identity. But the Jewish people, you know, as a Jewish person, no, you're just a white male. You're, you're a white European male. That's it. You're not anything special that we should look to accommodate you. So I think I'm, I think I'm answering the question. <laughs> Let's go a little enough. bit deeper on on the same okay. question. Okay. Because, and and I've interviewed enough people to see this piece of the story where you're you're getting exposure to different Jewish things. Like you said, you're seeing the mezuzah, and you're seeing people walk on Friday, and it's maybe turning something on inside of you of like, oh, I have this connection to religion that I haven't thought about in a certain number of years. But then there's usually a moment or a person that they meet that triggers them to go beyond just observing things to wanting to explore Judaism on a deeper level. So you've talked about graduating and having that first job, but you're not yet at a point where religion is going to become more prominent in your life. So is there some kind of trigger or something that happens that it becomes more meaningful to you? Yes, yes. Well, as I said, I was in the fraternity for a while, and probably the triggering moment was in December of, I believe, 1998, when most of the folks were getting ready to go home and it was exams time. So the parties were really starting to ramp up. And uh, it was very, very late one night at one of these houses that I mentioned that had mezuzahs on the walls and on, on almost every door. And uh, I was pretty inebriated, ready to call it a night. And I noticed across the hallway that two of my fraternity brothers were prying mezuzahs off the walls with a screwdriver. And so I got up and I followed them to the next room and they'd taken out some of the scrolls and were examining them. And one of them was, you know, crumpling them up and throwing them on the floor. So I stepped forward and I said, you know, what are you guys doing? Feeling like I had some obligation to protect and defend these mezuzahs and knowing their sanctity. So they said, you know, well, what are they called? And I said, they're called mezuzahs. So what are they for? And the best that I could manage in that state of mind was they're on Jewish people's homes. And so they kept asking me questions. Well, why are they on every door? And a bunch of other questions to which I kept answering, I don't know. I don't know. And one of them looks at me with real disdain in his eyes, and I'll, I'll still remember the look on his face for years. He said, well, if you're the Jew and you don't know, why should we care? And that really triggered me. So I try to defend Judaism, mezuzahs, etc., to the best of my knowledge. And I said, look, you're destroying these people's houses. Give me the mezuzahs right now. Just stop what you're doing. And so they started up a fight effectively and things got loud. Things got ugly. One of them walks away and I thought I was only arguing with one guy. And the other guy comes back into the room with a whole handful of these batim and klafim of mezuzahs. And he says, you want them? You want them so bad? Come and get them. And he throws them into a burning fireplace. Whoa. And both of them just sort of burst out laughing, and my heart sank. So this is exactly what I was trying to avoid. And you know that feeling of when you do something that you're trying to avoid, and it happens anyway. I walked out of the house, and it was a very, very cold night. I sat down somewhere down the block on the curb, and I just started to cry. And I thought, if you're the Jew and you don't know, yeah, why should they care? And that's what triggered me to really start looking into it, because... There were people walking home Friday nights. There were places I could go and resources I could follow up on to really pursue my interests 
and dig deeper. And that's what really got me started from, I would say, December of 1998 onward. And from there, it became, you know, an education. So that's like a truly sad story. And it's making me think you could have come out of that and said, all right, I want to be prepared for a solid mezuzah answer if I'm ever in that kind of situation again, (laughs) which I would hope would never happen. But the fact that it triggered you wanting to really explore Judaism overall and go deeper into it personally tells you like just how impactful that moment was for you. Yeah, yeah. And I knew that Lakewood was not far. I knew that Brooklyn was not was effectively not far. I mean, to drive there, it's tough, but physically, it's within range. And I started hanging out in Lakewood. I started hanging out in Brooklyn, and I started getting invited up to Muncie. And that's really where the learning began, and the journey starts on the real path to tour observance. But did you think when you started going to these places like Lakewood and Muncie that you just mentioned, it seems like the beginning of that was, I want to get educated, because it was like pretty eye-opening to you to not have an answer to probably what you view as, as a basic question now, like, what's a mezuzah for? But when you were going to those classes... Were you actually thinking I might want to become a Torah observant Jew, or was it really more about wanting to educate yourself just to become a more knowledgeable Jew? Yeah, it was knowledge. And then it was maybe a few days after the mezuzah story occurred that I had a job at the school pool, and I was a lifeguard. And as I said, this was towards the end of exam, so practically no students were on campus or to be seen. And I was lifeguarding. The place was empty, and a woman came in who I knew from frequently swimming, and she's swimming with her head above water and sort of just, you know, stretching, and she says, hi, how you doing? I said, good. She said, "Um, when are you going home for Christmas? And that was like nails on a chalkboard for me. And I said, well, I'm Jewish. I'm not really going home for Christmas. I'm sort of hanging out here in the dorms until I can finally go home and spend the least amount of time there as possible. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, um, and she said to me, oh, I'm Jewish too. How would you like to come to Shabbos dinner with me and my family then? And that was absolutely intriguing. So I didn't start with the classes as much as you said earlier, as I started with invitations shortly after the mezuzah story, and I don't ascribe anything but Hashkacha Pratis, divine intervention, with that timing, because it was just perfect. Okay, so you go to this Shabbos meal. Is this your first time having a meal with an observant family to like see how it really goes? Yes. And what did you feel about it? What was it like for you? She actually came to me and she said, I see how much you like this, and I want to introduce you to my son's rabbis who are teaching them for their bar mitzvah, because he can give you much more than I can give you. And whatever her level was, she realized that uh, she had thought the best way to help me forward and offer guidance was to guide me to this rabbi. And then I really began in earnest. Isn't it amazing how a simple invitation in a chance encounter yes. that you then would look back and realize how significant that was as a turning point in your life? Yes, yes. And if she's listening uh, to Dr. and Mrs. Martyr, thank you very much and want to get back in touch with you because we've, uh, we've been out of touch too long. See, I had the same thing. I had uh, Rabbi Yudin, who was the rabbi in Fairlawn, New Jersey, who gave me a simple invitation to a beginner's class, and it like kicked off this whole momentum towards becoming observant. But at the time, it just seemed like a courteous thing that he was inviting me to try out a class. That's amazing. Yeah. And we don't have any concept of what the slightest smile or invitation will do. And it's the kind of thing you want to think about at Rosh Hashanah. That, you know, this is what I've done over the course of the year, and this is what I want to do. This is why we're begging for more life, more opportunities like this. 
And so you come out of that meal and you get connected to this rabbi who can teach you like much more than this family did. So what's going on in your life now as you start attending these classes and you're, and you're becoming more and more knowledgeable about Judaism? Balancing it with work is tricky. And I did so, obviously, because it was weekends, it was easy. But I actually started going into New York City at his direction. He said, you know, you have to go and find groups of other people who are doing this exact same thing in your situation. And I said, where? And he said, New York City. Now, that's not easy from deal. And I put myself on a train once, sometimes twice, and even three times a week if I was staying for Shabbos, on a train for about an hour, hour 15 minutes, to go into Manhattan. There used to be a place in Midtown called the Jewish Educational Center. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was wonderful. Me and a bunch of other folks all went to Israel as a result of that in yeshiva and seminary. To this day, I'm in touch with several of them. And uh, that's the exactly the kind of next step that I think he was alluding to, this rabbi who I'd go to. And some of the things at his table that were absolutely inspiring were things like seeing seven, eight, nine kids all seated around the table, having a wonderful meal, a conversation, divrei Torah, and I said to myself, this is what I really want. This is exactly what I've been looking for. So I think that next step, yeah. So lots of people make the Israel trip happen or even studying in yeshiva in those like late teens to early 20 years. How old are you when you have that experience? And how are you able to pull it off given you said you had a, a job going on in a career you were building in technology? This is going to sound hard to believe, but it's absolutely true. I started praying to get laid off so I could learn in Israel. And I would show up at work the next day after maybe a trip into New York City, and it would be late. There were times when I fell asleep on the train. For example, I would fall asleep, pass my stop, and then have to take the train back. And then people at work would recognize that and say, hey, Brian, I bet you went into New York City again last <laughs> night. I said, yeah. And one of my coworkers, God bless him, said, I don't understand something, Sylvie. You're going to New York City once, twice, three times a week, you say, but you're not going in to party or meet women. You're going in to learn. And I said, yeah. And he said to me, why don't you just quit your job and go to Israel? And that's when I started to pray, you know, Hashem, if you want me to learn any yeshiva in Israel, then just have me laid off and I'll trust you for the rest of the way. And Jeff, that's what happened. It was really, really unbelievable. At some point, I started putting on a kippah at work. And I am not exaggerating. I got a empty stare for about seven, eight seconds, staring at my kippah, not into my eyes. And my coworker says, so, Brian, what's new? <laughs> <laughs> so at which point I had to explain and I was a little bit uncomfortable, but I kept wearing it. So that happened at work. That happened at the defense contractor. And I was praying to get laid off from work, explain to people. And wouldn't you know it, in July of 2002, I was laid off from my job because a project had been cut. They were shifting funds from whatever I was working on on U.S. Army Intelligence to Department of Homeland Security because September 11th had occurred the previous September. And the guy walked me into a room sat me down with the, the big boss and human resources, and my heart started to pound. I knew exactly where this was going. And when they said to me, here are your papers, please sign here, here are your, your exit papers, 
I was smiling and beaming, and they were so uncomfortable thinking I would pull out a weapon or something. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but that's honestly the way that it occurred. And uh, I have uh, nothing but a karsatov, gratitude to Hashem, to have for it, after it. So at this point, when you're given this, I'll, I'll put in quotes, a gift that you're getting fired, you're now going to go to Israel and you're going to go to Yeshiva. Where are you in terms of your Jewish observance and things that you've taken on at this point? I had bought a pair of tefillin. I don't exactly know when, but I did have a pair of tefillin that I put on every day. And as I said, when I was praying, I put those on and had, had a muna that Hashem was going to send me in the right direction. Trying to observe Shabbos as best I could, asking questions like, you know, silly questions like, so if I have to take a shortcut across a grassy field, should I be scared that I'm going to step on a bug and kill a bug on my way? You know, so it was, you know, newbie questions, beginner questions like that. And I had many of those, but I think everyone that encountered me really saw it as refreshing and a chance to teach when I was willing to learn. So I really got along well with anyone that was happy to take my, my questions and not judge me on, you know, how, how, how new I was to the fold. And so you're now laid off and you make this decision that you're going to go to Israel. How does your family feel about this? Like, what are the oh. conversations with them? Because this is not exactly how you were raised. Correct. And this is during the Intifada. This is at a time when the Sabaro bombing on Jaffa had just occurred, or right around that time, I believe, and things were really rising. So um, my parents had a second house. They had moved out in New Jersey seasonally, and they said, you know what, we know you just got laid off. Why don't you come spend a few days, weeks, whatever with us? And I did. I went down to um, North Carolina where they lived on three golf courses and it was just all about golf. And it was actually, it was a challenge because some of the same brands that we have here in New York, New Jersey area don't have the Heckscher that you'd expect because they're processed in a different factory. You know, so there is no Hushgacha. Um, So it was a little bit of a challenge and I went down there and among those other challenges was from my parents to say, okay, you want to go to Israel to learn in yeshiva and you're not going to work? How exactly is that going to be good for you? So it took some maneuverings, but we finally did agree that I would go for a, a trial period. I was only supposed to go starting Elulzman in August of 2002. I was going to stay till about after the Jewish holidays, around you know October or so, and then I was planning on coming back. So I only packed enough clothes, probably for about you know two weeks, and I kept doing laundry. But I slowly, really discovered it was wonderful. And the yeshiva that I went to, again, tremendous hakar satov to the yeshiva and, and the entire hanhala there, the yeshiva Zor Sameach in Jerusalem, uh, they really took me in and they really embraced me. It was wonderful. And I eventually called my parents back. I can still recall, uh, you know, standing at a payphone because I didn't have a, a cell phone of my own uh, with, a, with a calling card calling back to the States and saying, Mom, Dad, I really have decided I want to stay and I really like you to support me. So we had some conversations about, you know, what then the plan was and what the duration would be. But we agreed that, you know, it wouldn't be indefinite and that I would eventually come back and maybe even try to find a job remotely from Israel to work in the U.S. so that I would have an easier transition back. And that almost worked, except for the fact that I met my wife about a year and a half in. And then we, we got married about six months after that. So you met your wife while you were in Israel? She's Israeli or she was from America but happened to be there? Technically, she is Israeli through her father. 
but he had emigrated to the United States and had been living in the Philadelphia area for mm, 30, 40 years, something like that. So she had gone back and forth to visit family all the time and was taking up on seminary in Harnof, for example, and she would go to see her family who lived in Jerusalem, who lived in Mali Adumim, who lived in Efrat, etc. She had family there and it was easier, much, much easier for her to make that kind of transition than it was for me. But we did meet through a Shadchan in Me'asharim. I mean, it was really unexpected. And again, I just took the Shadchan's advice as I had taken everyone else's advice. And uh, that's, that's how we met. And what was her religious background in relation to yours? So she was, I would say, less traditional, as you said. I do think, as people use the word traditional, I had a, a richer background than most, but she had the authentic Israeli background, and she for example, speaks fluent Hebrew. She uh, had family that are there, and she could really call herself an Israeli. So it was slightly different for her, but more of the same in the traditional sense that you would say or others would say, more than my, my background with, as I said, the you know enriched um, details and, and depth. But at the time that you met and then the relationship started to get more serious, are you having discussions about the fact of where you came from and how you were each raised versus the kind of family you might want to have someday and, and how you'd be raising them? We did. We did, in fact. And one of the most valuable things one of my rebbeim at Orsamech said to me was, uh, I, I said, you know, I'm going out on these dates and I don't know exactly how to go about this. This is totally alien to me. What do I do? And he said to me, the most powerful thing, which I would give anyone else advice in the same way because it's so generic and yet can be applied so broadly. He said, close your eyes for a second and picture what you want your Shabbos table to look like. Then picture what the wife you want to have in order to get that Shabbos looks like. And the third and most difficult step is making yourself into the man that she wants to marry. And I said, wow, yeah. So I went with that. And, uh, you know, to this day, we're married 19, almost 20 years, four children. So it's, uh, it's definitely the right advice. That is really beautiful, and I would think that while you're getting more serious in Israel, are you having discussions about, let's build a life here, or was it always known that you'd come back? And what did your parents think about all this? We tried, and, and actually, um, she said, now, my father didn't emigrate for no reason. My, my father emigrated, <laughs> <laughs> so she preferred to, to be back either in Philadelphia, and we looked in the Bryn Mawr community, for example. We looked down in Philadelphia. We looked up where I used to live, and that's where we settled, actually, today. Piscataway is right next to where I live now, Highland Park, and we decided that we we're going to go somewhere that had a more heterogeneous look to it. You know, we always saw ourselves as as more colorful than maybe a Haredi family. Even though I am very comfortable in that milieu, it's not her, and it's probably not me. I stick out like a sore thumb when I'm in those circles, uh, say at a wedding, for example, but I am comfortable in those because I feel like that's where the meaning is, and that's where the depth is, and and that's where I get a lot of satisfaction. I think she does too. So we only had conversations around, okay, we're not going to live in New York City because of the crowding. We're probably not right for a number of different communities here, there, and everywhere. And we don't want to just go and start a new community. For example, as someone suggested to us, well, you know, uh, the uh, Omaha community is looking for a, for a <laughs> bunch of you folks. To know. So, that's not you. Yeah, I'm not strong enough for that. No. No offense to our Omaha listeners. No offense to Omaha listeners. Love you all. <laughs> <laughs> well played. Okay, so you, you settled down, and you but you didn't talk about when you were coming back from Israel how you re-entered in your career. You talked about how you were looking at possibilities, finding something remote. 
But from the intro, it sounds like you stayed in the you know, technology engineering type field. So what have you been doing for the last several years career-wise? And kind of before you answer, how has religion played into it? I'm asking in the vein of the fact that you were putting a keep on your head for the first time in the job right before you left. So how were you presenting yourself when you came back and, and how that all played out of mixing religion and your career together? The truth is that I probably restarted my career. I mean, I only had about a year and a half in before I got laid off of a serious job, of a serious nature, and where I was actually valuable to the company and it wasn't just on-the-job training. So I took what I could. And to be truthful, I kept the yeshiva and the fact that I had a, a, a Bachelor of Arts degree from the yeshiva in Talmudic law on my resume. I did that for two reasons. Number one, I did that for any Jew that would see me and say, ah, here's a from Jew. You know, so that was my way of, of networking. Secondarily, I did it because if someone says to me, Talmudic law? I'm sorry, I never heard of that. What is that? Well, that becomes the springboard to a conversation in an interview. And I can try to convince them that, look, a lot of what I do, let's say validation, you are testing things and you need to try all the corner cases and the analytics that you get out of Gemara and the training that you get in plumbing every aspect of something to make sure that it is true and complete really is valuable. And um, I started really at the bottom again, taking baseline contracting jobs. I slowly moved up to a W-2 basis as a full-time employee. And then by Hashgacha practice, really landed at some fantastic places, including IDT, the uh, telecom company in Newark. And that was a from-friendly environment because the owner is Jewish. Well, it's a publicly traded company, but you know he owns probably 49% of the company and makes it a, a from-friendly environment. And went from there. The only place that it really comes up, the Judaism, is when I had somewhat of a sales position. I was in a delivery position for IT, meaning I was the one doing the work. Then I got shifted to a sales position because I convinced the client to buy into three different solutions, which cost somewhere in the range of like $1.5 or $1.6 million. So the guy who became my boss was the vice president of sales and said, hey, Sylvie, I, I heard you're, you're selling. That's great. You know what I need? I need someone who has the delivery skills and the sales skills, and it sounds like you've got them. How'd you like to go and find me some new clients? And until this point, they had not really established an inside sales department. All their sales were referential sales through some kind of you know people they knew at the top. And I was now to take a bottom-up approach, looking at the director levels, the VP levels, who I was most familiar with instead of the CIOs or CTOs, etc. And when I would travel, for example, uh, sales meetings, we'd go to Miami and they'd live it up at a hotel and they'd try to wine you and dine you as a reward for what you did for the year. We'd all go out to a, you know, a trafe steakhouse. And I have to tell the waiter, look, uh, I just want a drink. I want a bourbon. I don't want you to cut the orange. I just want a bourbon on ice. And when he brings the bourbon with the orange slice, I have to say, I'm sorry, could you please send this back? I can't have sliced orange on my drinks. And they ask why. I learned over time to simply say, I have dietary restrictions. Right. And just keep it very simple instead of kosher and this and that. <laughs> and it's it's just not worth the effort in many cases in business where it's just polite to say, look, uh, just like I was diabetic or anything else, I have dietary restrictions. Please just do it like this. So that's the only place that it really came up. 
And so you also mentioned just turning from career stuff back to family, how you had four kids. And I'm wondering if you had a similar experience to me watching them do their homework in kindergarten, first grade and realizing it was already too advanced for you because they're getting, you know, eight hours a day of all this. And what's that experience like, given how you and your wife were raised and now seeing your kids get it from the ground up like you didn't? Absolutely agree, Jeff. I think for my wife, certainly, and for me, secondarily, education is big. And it's it's a struggle for us to give them the right education. And when things actually do come out well and you have a kid that's solid, it's so rewarding. And then when you have a kid that's struggling because they didn't get the basic skills or didn't get the basic resources they needed to address their needs, it's difficult because, yeah, it starts off very benignly. And then it slowly takes on this level of sophistication that you realize you can't do yourself and you are forced to either find someone as a tutor or to get personal time with the Rebbe to fill in the gaps that you're unable to provide. It's um, definitely something my wife and I struggle with. I'm sure other people do too, coming from that kind of background. So I identify exactly with what you're saying. Yes. And so just before we close the interview going into the lightning round, I always like to ask my guests, and particularly you, who is clearly coming across as growth-oriented by how much you explored Judaism and went after it, what's on the bucket list for you and your family over the next three to five years as you continue your journey in Jewish observance? I'm in a tactical mode. I'm just in tactical mode for now. But uh, I think, you know, coming out of COVID, we can think more strategically, probably we're looking at how do we make sure the next generation makes the most out of what we've set as the foundation. We just want to see our children continue in this growth pattern or take on a growth mindset. And we want to see them thrive in whatever way is unique to them and their skill set and their situation. So it's always, you know, Hanach Lenar Alpidarko. You always want to just teach the child according to his own way. You have to be careful, though, because the more children you have, the more ways you go. So, <laughs> so you're going four ways. I'm going four ways right now. Yes, yes. Right. It's amazing. It's the same two parents, and somehow the kids are not like each other at all. Yeah. If I was an octopus, I would still be juggling. So. <laughs> <laughs> A beautiful line to transition to the lightning round. So you ready for some fast questions to close out the interview? Shoot. All right, so you're a guy who knows and is around technology all the time. What do you see as the coolest technological advancement or innovation in in recent time? Artificial intelligence does have a lot of good to it, but it's got to be used properly. My kids, particularly my older one, as he got his smartphone for the first time, as I handed it to him, I said, I'm about to give you what I view as the best invention of all time and the worst. And I wanted to hear your perspective on that, if you, if you agree with that. He's right. I, I Because <laughs> for you and I, you know, we're technological immigrants. We're coming to this and we have to adapt. For them, it's natural. And yeah, to have at your fingertips, for example, you can't learn Gemara without Rashi. It's absolutely crucial. And there are places where you can get Rashi with Gemara translated if you can't do it yourself. And that's my go-to site. So I actually want to change my answer and say, your son is right. Probably just having a smartphone and all this information at your fingertips is a tremendous resource, I think. So you were privileged enough to go to Israel and make it happen to go to Yeshiva and really advance your learning. And leading up to this interview, I was thinking... How did this guy who had a job make this happen? And we found out in the interview made it happen by getting laid off. 
So someone who could be listening to this interview and say, well, I also would love this opportunity to go to Israel, but my life is too busy and it's not realistic to assume I'll just quit my job or that a uh, severance package is going to land in my lap. So what would you say to someone who really wants to go deeper on Judaism, wants to take that time to explore, but is really worried about how they would fit in or make it happen? Three short things. One is Hashem is real and Hashem is all-powerful. Two, you can talk to Hashem anytime you want. And three, be generic and ask Hashem to guide you for your personal situation. Okay, well said, giving us a list of three. Brian, you are out of the lightning round, and I want to thank you for joining me on Saturday to Shabbos. It's been a pleasure, Jeff. Thank you so much. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit taklismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard, or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at tachlismedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.